patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone and welcome to episode 74 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you all so much for joining me this week. I hope you are enjoying your Martin Luther King Jr. long weekend. Make sure to subscribe to our email list for the latest notifications and updates about our program and consider becoming a Patreon member to get even more benefits for all of you to enjoy We've recently updated the benefits for all three of our membership levels, so make sure to check out the link down in the show notes below to learn more and join us as an official Patreon member of Friends and Fellow Citizens. Now, I would like to introduce our special guest this week. Marine Colonel James D. Bullet McGinley retired from the Marine Corps after more than 32 years of service. In his final assignment, he served as the Deputy Commander, Expeditionary Strike Group 5, leading a rapidly deployable battle staff with command authority for over 20 U.S. warships, 39 aircraft, and 4,500 sailors, marines, and guardians. This was his third and final combat tour after returning from a one-year combat assignment in Iraq, where he served as the Deputy Commander, Chief of Staff for the Iraq Assistance Group a joint command within Multinational Corps Iraq in Baghdad. As a naval aviator in 2001, then-Lieutenant Colonel McGinley took command of HMH-769, the Titans, flying stateside pre-deployment missions for the 1st Marine Division and providing high-altitude operations training for 42nd Commando, British Royal Marines, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. In 2004, Colonel McGinley was selected to serve on the Joint Staff in the Pentagon. Upon completion of his Joint Staff tour, he immediately deployed with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force to pre-surge Ramadi, Al-Ambar Province, Iraq, in fall of 2006. During this combat tour, he served as the Transition Training Team Leader and was assigned the mission of establishing the 1st Provincial Joint Coordination Center for the province. He also served as the inaugurating director of the Al-Ambar PJCC. In May 2008, Colonel McGinley returned to Iraq for a one-year combat tour as the deputy commander, chief of staff of the Iraq Assistance Group, working on operations and plans directly affecting coalition force efforts to train, mentor, and advise Iraqi security forces. Colonel McGinley's combat decorations include the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and the Iraq Campaign Medal. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am very, very honored to be welcoming our guest this week, Colonel James McGinley. Colonel, thank you so much for being on Friends and Fellow Citizens this week. Sure, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you have a remarkable background in the Marine Corps and really in the life of public service. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to reach out to you. And today we're going to be covering on a number of issues, but I want to first start a little bit with more about your military experience and background, because um, 
it is is truly remarkable to read about you know a profile like yours and also uh, because it's important it's so important to reflect on uh, the military service of our me- of our military members um would you mind elaborating a bit more about uh, your career your how you got into the marine corps and some of the early experiences that you had firsthand uh, as you became part of the marine corps well, I spent, uh, before I retired from the Marine Corps, I spent uh, 30 years as a naval aviator, military pilot. Uh, and uh, within those 30 years, the final years, uh, because of uh, all of the post 9 11 conflict, I did three combat tours um, in the Middle East, uh, one, uh, one of which was out in Iraq, in the Ramadi and Fallujah area in Al Anbar. Um, prior to the surge, and then back for a, a second 13-month tour uh, out of uh, based out of Baghdad, and then a, a final 13-month tour based out of Manama, Bahrain, uh, as the deputy commander with the Expeditionary Strike Group. Uh, so uh, with that, it became a very broad experience uh, flying aboard the carrier uh, a, out in the, the uh, Pacific, particularly down in the areas of uh, places like Australia, uh, Thailand, the Philippines, uh, and then contrast that with living in a rather austere environment out in Ramadi in 2006-2007 uh, at a point where in pre-surge Ramadi things were uh, unfortunately very bloody. There came a point after the uh, kind of primary kinetic phase, uh, the part that most people think of as combat and war, where we were transitioning as a nation to try and stand up a, a new functioning Iraqi government. And part of that requires security forces. And uh, the Iraqis had um, highway patrol. They had Iraqi police, the Iraqi army. Um, so various different elements of security forces and what we would think of as border patrol um, for uh, trying to secure their landmass borders. Uh, all of that fell under the uh, essentially under the command and control of uh, the Iraq assistance group, not for the actual authority to move those forces, but to teach, to train, to mentor and advise. So we had transition teams that embedded with these newly stood up security forces, and they would spend uh, part of each day teaching and training. Uh, And as that teaching and training progressed, it moved on to mentoring and then finally to advising the uh, newly formed units on how to be most effective in their various different roles. Uh, so uh, for the Iraq Assistance Group, uh, we had the overarching command on behalf of uh, the um, uh, multinational core Iraq, which then uh, actually nested under multinational force Iraq. Uh, for these various different transition teams spread across the entire nation. Um, when I was there in 2006, 2007, I stood up the Provincial Joint Coordination Center, or PJCC, uh, and that had uh, some of the same sorts of um, uh, teaching and training types of objectives And so for me, the next step in that progression, after actually having been on the ground uh, and nested in as part of a teach, train, uh, mentor, and advise mission, 
Uh, it then essentially blossomed into the uh, deputy commander and chief of staff for the Iraq Assistance Group, where we uh, took on the larger role of trying to coordinate all of those transition teams across the nation of Iraq and across multiple lines of effort, uh, particularly when you think about how different it is for essentially a, a border patrol or a border checkpoint type function compared to Iraqi police or Iraqi army. I really appreciate your introduction, Colonel, and thank you so much for sharing about this. One of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking was about the cultural barriers that you and your team had to face as reality. How did you and your team deal with those cultural barriers when you were all in Iraq at the time? I think a lot of it had to do with expectations. Um, you know, I would have young Marines who would expect that uh, after they had um, done a training presentation, that they would essentially uh, mint another uh, Marine. And the answer was that the uh, Iraqis um, have their own unique culture uh, and, and a proud culture of thousands of years of history. Uh, and I always thought that Iraq had an unbelievable potential because of the various different na uh, nations across that region, they had water uh, with, uh, you know, um, rivers like uh, the, the Tigris or the Euphrates, um, the Great River from the Old Testament, the Euphrates. Uh, also, they had strong traditions of education at universities. Uh, and then, of course, they had this massive uh, oil wealth. And when you put those three things together, I thought that they had enormous potential. Uh, but part of it was letting Iraqis be Iraqis and have the, the uh, understanding that culturally they were going to be so entirely different and unique uh, that it would not be an easy frame of reference. I think the second thing for uh, some of our uh, younger troops was the idea that we hadn't moved the ball all the way to absolute completion. And what I tried to help them understand is if you can move this mission forward in any significant way, then that is a successful time in Iraq. Uh, and putting those two things together, I thought was very helpful. Uh, one of the things that I did was uh, colonels normally did not speak to junior Iraqis. Uh, it didn't matter whether they were Iraqi police or Iraqi army or uh, Iraqi um, uh, border patrol, any of those different uh, types of um, units. But I thought it would be helpful to, to actually have me sit down and talk with them. And I had uh, one uh, young uh, Iraqi soldier look at me and say, in essence, are you a person of faith? And being out in the combat zone, I had a rosary right in my flight suit sleeve pocket, and I pulled it out to show him uh, about uh, my faith. And is the moment I pulled out rosary beads uh, around the table, I saw prayer Muslim prayer beads come out of pockets and start to dangle. And you could see many of those Iraqis had never met or talked to somebody who was not Muslim. And so to find this out was a, a, a an instant point of, of kind of coming together, a little bit of bonding. And uh, and there were a lot of actually uh, questions about my own faith and how that uh, had influenced me, because I think that they were really trying to learn 
uh, about uh, what American culture is and, and really what and who Americans are. Uh, the net effect was, I thought, very productive and wound up with uh, a group that over time came together very well. Uh, another thing that I thought uh, inadvertently was helpful was we were able to scrounge a, a discarded ping pong uh, table and we wound up having Americans versus Iraqis playing ping pong. And then we switched it up and had combined teams with uh, Iraqi and American on each side. And uh, that type of, of uh, just sport, uh, without it being a contact sport, worked very well to bring them together and uh, start to get to know each other. The, the final thing was um, I had asked all of the U.S. Marines uh, that were in my command as part of the transition team for the Provincial Joint Coordination Center uh, to learn a handful of uh, phrases in Arabic so that they could, in essence, extend a hand of friendship uh, as they started to team together. That proved to be the single most important thing that we did in many ways to, uh, to kind of remove barriers and break that down. Uh, it did a couple of different things. One, it showed that the Americans were not coming in uh, essentially uh, in a, with a snobbish approach that they were too good to uh, attempt Arabic, but it also showed them as being a little bit uh, vulnerable because their accents may not be right. They may not be pronouncing things correctly. And the Iraqis had a chance as we tried to train them on very specific technical skills to return the favor and teach us a bit about both their language and a little bit about their culture as well. Uh, so with that, uh, I think that uh, just that one piece wound up being a, a very important part of the relationship aspect of bringing a team together, forming a team, and then bonding a team so that uh, they could be much more productive uh, as they went through this cycle of teaching, training, mentoring, and then finally advising before turning it over, which was the end state, was to turn uh, the Iraqi governance uh, piece back over to um, Iraqi government control and transition from American control. That is, those are such great stories, Colonel. I, I was thinking a little bit about ping pong diplomacy back in the 70s. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. That's Take, right. But taking out another level, I really love how you described that diplomatic approach, you know, on a, even though you were part of the military. That, I think, is is super unique and maybe something that maybe not a lot of people really know about because we often think about the combat side of things and and it, you know those are integral obviously with the mission of the military but to add on those those bits of bridges so to speak bridges and connecting with the the Iraqis that's that's so great i if i may ask how well did you do on your your ping pong were you able to sharpen your skills <laughs> <laughs> my my ping pong was always ordinary uh, but um I, I did enjoy uh, learning some of the Iraqi language, and I think that that uh, was helpful. Um, we obviously relied on uh, some of the um, translators that we had uh, to uh, to take, and uh, particularly when we were dealing with senior leaders like the governor of Al-Anbar. Al-Anbar, just for reference, is about 
uh, that particular province is about a third of the entire landmass of Iraq. And um, when one of the things that I found to be very effective and I actually offered along as coaching to other uh, senior U.S. officers for various different generals uh, was that uh, people oftentimes put the senior leader from Iraq that they were talking to at one side of the table, then put the, uh, the translator or the linguist uh, right in the middle and then sat uh, at the other end. And what I found was everybody started talking to the translator. And so it wound up being a three-way conversation like this. What I always did was seat the translator to my offside and look directly at the person I'm talking to and let the translated voice flow from behind me so that I could maintain eye contact and be in the conversation with the person I'm talking to. And it, it's a small thing, but it's amazing how it changes the character and the quality of the communication. Oftentimes, I would uh, see their expressions change and respond to their expression. And I found out later that there were a couple of Iraqis that thought I knew more how to speak more Arabic than I was letting on because of my responses were preceding the translation. And uh, in fact, my Arabic hadn't progressed that far, but it meant that I was that much further into the communication than I would have been if I had been bouncing back and forth off the translator instead of actually communicating with the person who I was talking to. So there were things like that that actually uh, lent, uh, really lend themselves to the experience and things that I think uh, would be useful going forward uh, in other countries or other circumstances. Uh, all of those lessons learned, I think, are enormously helpful. And uh, it also helps us understand that this notion that the country goes to war, the kinetic part of it, it, it really ought to be conceptualized only as a small part. You know, if you think about the uh, Japanese, uh, the um, uh, Germans, uh, and to some extent, the Italians out of World War II, uh, though uh, World War II ended uh, in the 40s, in the mid 40s, uh, we still have bases and we still have interactions with the Japanese and we still have that same sort of arrangement with our bases in Germany. And you can see how we've grown our economies together, our cultures together. And of course, in uh, uh, no small part, we also helped draft the constitutions and form some of the culture that uh, came out of World War II. And same thing with Korea. We're still in, in Korea, somewhat 50 years later or thereabouts. And it shows you that uh, if you looked at World War II, the, the kinetic piece only lasted for uh, a couple of years, tough years particularly tough on the Marine Corps. But if you think about that relationship and how long and how hard we've worked on our relationship with the country of Japan and, uh, and Germany, uh, that, that starts to give you an understanding of how you might conceptualize it well beyond just the basic kinetic phase in which bombs are dropping and bullets are flying. Colonel, that is also a very clever part of just understanding people, understanding how people respond to each other. And I think by recognizing that while we come from different cultures, you know, the Iraqis and the Americans, and yet there are there are kind of these common 
languages, not language as in like, uh, you know, Farsi or English, but language as in body language or the way that we interact. So I just, uh, I, I really want to commend you for, for, for thinking of those in advance and to execute them. And I guess this is a good transition now into a bit about your experience with the Navy League. And as we spoke a bit earlier before our recording, we had John Kaskin and Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris just as several weeks ago, last year in 2021, and they offered two amazing episodes discussing our naval strategy in uh, regards to China, uh, some of the issues that are happening really domestically, everything from shipbuilding to supply chain issues to COVID. There's a whole range of things to to cover. Colonel, uh, let's start with uh, your involvement in the Navy League. How did you get involved, and what is your role as part of the uh, United States Marine Corps Affairs Committee? Well, the uh, Navy League uh, embraces beyond just the United States Navy and really looks to uh, the maritime component. So you see Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, um, and uh Obviously, Merchant Marine has an aspect in all of that as well. Uh, if you look at the Navy Marine Corps team, uh, that's actually how I met uh, Admiral Harris. He and I were assigned into Expeditionary Strike Group 5 to uh, stand it up at the point we were assigned. There was no uh, Strike Group 5. We uh, brought that from scratch uh, as uh, the uh, fleet commander wanted to have a dedicated uh, strike group assigned to um, Fifth Fleet. But with that, uh, it then uh, um, blossomed in both to uh, a, a very full uh, tour of uh, it had combat phase, but also it had some other non-combat and also anti-piracy operations all out in Fifth Fleet. Bring that forward into the Navy League, and they were looking for uh, a bit of the Marine perspective in the Navy Marine Corps team uh, for uh future strategies and future operations and what our strategic outlook might be. And uh, with that, I have been writing that strategy piece on behalf of uh, the Navy League uh, and the uh, reaching out to the active component of the Marine Corps for some of their initiatives and to see where uh, the Navy League um, might have common interests and may be supportive. What do you think are some of the big challenges that the Marine Corps is facing when it comes to our strategy, our naval strategy in the Indo-Pacific at this time? I think uh, probably the single biggest issue for the Marine Corps is uh, the um, capacity of the communist Chinese uh, to find, fix, locate, and then um, target with precision fires. Uh, and I think what that means kind of broken down into kind of more plain language is that uh, large Navy service vessels, and that sounds like um, aircraft carriers and, and larger um, surface warfare strike groups and things, uh, if they are readily targeted, uh, then we can't put them into a stand-in fight. And if, if they can't come to a stand-in fight, then they have to stay outside of an engagement zone. And that means that the tactics have to change dramatically. And it also changes uh, amphibious approaches and what types of um, uh, strategies and tactics are employed. Um, for that, I, my own nickname for that is Marines and Submarines. 
Uh, if you have an area where the enemy has enough capacity to create that kind of denial of your major assets, then the question becomes, how do you take and modify tactics, uh, techniques, strategies, procedures in order to cope with it? And uh, one of the ways to do that is to use submarines uh, to have them put as much of the Chinese Navy and the Chinese threat um, uh, out of commission immediately uh, at the top of any conflict, but also to use Marines uh, that may be in places that are not well monitored or predicted and uh, use them actually as uh, anti-ship threats as well. So if you can have Marines that are shore-based on an island uh, killing uh, uh, Chinese ships effectively at sea, uh, you can see that before long we can open up an area where uh, the uh, where America's fleet can operate uh, safely and effectively. But moving through that initial phase becomes critical, um, particularly when you have uh, that volume of threat uh, and and most specifically uh, for uh, precision targeting against uh, the U.S. and U.S. shipping as a target. So I think that that's a lot of what the Marine Corps is trying to adjust to. And one of the key approaches that's being discussed um, publicly is uh, distributed operations, where you would take and have uh, small to extremely small units of Marines spread across a vast area of the, of the Pacific uh, and use the, their uh, capacity to disrupt, um, to uh reshape what it would look like in the maritime domain uh, in the early area, uh, early time frame of a kinetic fight. Uh, certainly, we don't want a kinetic fight. Uh, that's not good for either nation, and it's not good for the sons and daughters of either nation. Uh, but if it comes to that, uh, being very effective and very quick about it uh, could be the difference between having a, um, a, a quick and successful engagement which then raises the cost too high for an enemy to continue. I should do two things here. One is um, the Chinese people, the actual people that are there are very hardworking and are uh, victimized by this uh, communist regime much more than even the rest of the world is. They, they bear the most direct brunt of the damage done by that communist regime. And so it, 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 we should talk about the communist regime, its governance and its party separate and apart from the Lao Beijing, the, the actual normal, everyday, hardworking guy who's just trying to look after his family. Um, that's, that's not where uh, the future of China is. And that's the problem with having the People's Republic of China as a communist regime uh, controlling and doing enormously destructive things in the first instance to the Chinese people, and of course, threatening uh, to the rest of uh, peace-loving countries on the globe. Uh, the second thing is we've learned from the prior administration that the single most effective weapon that this country has against that communist regime uh, isn't military at all. It's tariffs. And the tariffs are dramatically more uh, threatening and are a much greater concern. The two great concerns for PRC are tariffs and religion. And th those are strengths for us, but it also allows us opportunities. And so much could be accomplished 
uh, with uh, much more with tariffs in terms of recalibrating the trading relationship. And the other thing is onshoring. Every time we bring a manufacturing onshore, then instead of taking and shipping by way of maritime operations, uh, raw materials all the way to China, where uh, just tragically, it's uh, oftentimes slave labor and child labor that actually does the physical manufacturing. And then those manufactured goods uh, by way of uh, containerized intermodal units are shipped back to the United States, again, using an awful lot of fossil fuel to get it there in the first place and then bring it back. If we physically manufactured it in New Jersey, drove it across the bridge and consumed it, you know, the newest microwave, <laughs> the newest camera, the newest computer just arrived in to New York City, you can see how much more effective, efficient, what a better use of our energy resources. And it would ease a lot of the pressure that, that goes on right now in the maritime domain. And it would also then take and have the Chinese people have a different relationship with the government that they have right now. And uh, that those would be much more effective strategies for us than trying to build more aircraft carriers. So it can be as simple as making sure that we use uh, tariffs effectively uh, and persistently to recalibrate the relationship, uh, the trading relationship that, that, that we have with communist China. And in the meantime, benefit the American people, benefit the, their jobs, and of course, benefit their climate by uh, reducing a fossil fuel footprint, which I think would be fantastic for everyone. Well, that's, that's such great information that you provided, Colonel, because um, what I like about your answer is that it really goes back to the those fundamentals, at least in my opinion, the fundamentals of having that whole government approach and about not just focusing on one factor, not just focusing on, as you said, building more aircraft carriers. You know, that that is we I love I love to see another big aircraft carrier, the biggest one. You know, it's gotta be it's gotta be bigger and bigger every single time there's a new one. I think I've I've I watched videos about how they work and everything. It's so fascinating. It's like a little city essentially. Um, but as you were pointing out, there's all these other factors too about the fossil fuels, about the uh, the economic side of things. What are still some of those challenges of being able to pivot the Marine Corps from land-based combat or or that sort of era of national security policy to what uh, to the contemporary challenges that we're we're facing right now in the Indo-Pacific. Well, if if you uh, look at how the theater is different, how the uh, type of warfare that would be conducted is different, uh, the challenges are, uh, uh, without overstating it, very significant. Um, one of the uh, techniques that the U.S. might employ by way of the Marine Corps is the distributed operations, and. If we do that, we're going to need long-range precision fires. So you see the Marine Corps uh, now talking much more about um, uh, either long-range artillery or our missiles uh, and also looking at anti-ship missiles. Uh, the question becomes, how do you deploy them into these uh, very uh, uh, broad-reaching areas? And then how do you resupply them? And how do you communicate with them? Uh, particularly if you can't use traditional uh, Navy resupply, and especially if you have an enemy that's sophisticated enough 
to take down uh, key uh, elements of your communication architecture. And uh, some of the different thinking, though, the Marine Corps uh, put out, a, a Commandant put out a, a document called Force Design 2030. Uh, they're doing a lot of experimenting. They've updated uh, in 2021. I think we'll see another update coming out here in the spring. That would be my rough guess. And uh, with that, as they experiment, they're uh, trying different uh, approaches to see what works and developing some of those tactics. But I think in one of the more extreme circumstances, you might uh, imagine where you wouldn't have the ability to resupply the Marines at all, and you wouldn't have the ability to communicate with them. So maybe that becomes broad mission orders, which says that in this area, do those things that will aid in our overarching goal and turn them loose. Uh, maybe they live on the economy. Uh, maybe they come into the theater by way of civilian aircraft wearing civilian clothes. Uh, maybe they are resupplied by the economy. Uh, maybe you have to adjust what their um, purchasing footprint looks like because you can trace credit cards. Uh, so all of those different things when you start to add in a cyber layer, but it means that the Marines will uh, be much more uh, interested in low Earth orbit um, uh, communications capacities. That may mean that uh, we're looking more at some of the uh, basics of old shortwave and longwave radio. Uh, there may be a lot of different permutations or workarounds uh, in that concept. Uh, the other thing that, that uh, we have advocated is the idea of having a very low-cost semi-submersible. Uh, that would look an awful lot like a narco sub uh, and would take and sail in in the middle of the night, a beach itself. Marines would dash down to, uh, to the beach, grab the supplies off, turn it around, push it back out to sea. And if uh, we lost that vessel, it would be so very inexpensive. It would be expendable enough that if it could even complete a couple of missions, it would be worth the expense. And so uh, part of what the Commandant has defined is stand-in forces, which means uh, forces that are uh, durable enough, resilient enough, and in some cases, uh, equipment that is expendable enough uh, that it can stay right in the middle of the fight and can't be driven out by a determined enemy uh, because it's either a hard target or it's something that if occasionally they get lucky and nail one of our semi-submersibles, we've lost only a very small expense versus the good it was able to do in several resupply missions. So uh, that's a rethink for a military that always wanted the, the fastest, the most expensive, the most sophisticated, the most complex, taking and turning that on its head and saying, what is the uh, cheapest, most rugged, most resilient, uh, but uh, small enough that if you now, instead of having a handful of major targets, uh, if the uh, PRC now has, say, 10 or 15,000 individual targets, and they all move frequently, and they're not cooperative about showing themselves either electronically or visually, it, it makes that um, eventual solution for an enemy dramatically more difficult. And then at that point, we don't need to be perfect. Uh, we just need to be persistent. And uh, slowly but surely, you would see targets coming off the target list for the targeteers as they nominate them. 
as as we smack them down, uh, each one then makes that uh, domain much safer to the point where the Navy can operate with a surface fleet. And that's the point that we would move beyond my initial piece that I, I call Marines and Submarines, and then bring in the rest of American sea power. Uh, all of that ties back into that initial kinetic phase and then with the idea that we also have to know, uh, based on our experiences in Iraq, that we need a follow-on plan on how we will mature that relationship in a way that's much more productive over a long period of time. And there I'm talking typically somewhere between 70 and 100 years. You need multiple generations to take and recalibrate some of the cultural issues and, um, and have some of the success that we've had um, from uh, enemies that we faced in World War II. Yes, I think it's important to have that historical context and put the national security landscape into context as well. Colonel, I'm also interested in the cyber realm of things. What can you tell us about what the Marine Corps is doing working with other branches of the military and the U.S. government to expand those cyber capabilities during this time when we're confronting China on all kinds of fronts? Well, for an, an ideal requirement for the Marine Corps would be a highly resilient uh, command, uh, control, and communications network. Uh, the question is, can technology deliver on it? And if technology can deliver on it, can an enemy still then, with some persistence, find a way to defeat it? Um, this is part of what the Russians were trying to demonstrate in knocking out a, si a satellite over the past few weeks. Um, which is to say that I can take your satellites down. So if you're depending on satellites, and that could be depending on for communication, it could also be for guidance by way of GPS. So if those come uh, off the, the map, if, the, if that is uh, instantly um, degraded, uh, then uh, the question becomes, how do you continue to function without it? So Ideally, if we can have resilient uh, command, control, and communications, uh, that architecture is enormously valuable because it allows us to synchronize. And uh, when you're working in a very highly distributed operations, trying to synchronize uh, becomes uh, exponentially more difficult. Uh, the, the flip side from that is to say, you also need to be able to plan for an environment where all of that is lost. And yet you still function without command, without control, and without communications. And that may look like very broad uh, mission orders and highly creative um, teams of young Marines out doing wonderful things on behalf of their country, but uh, literally working through the problem without being able to get additional guidance or direction uh, anytime soon. Uh, and uh, operating uh, both either semi-autonomously or fully autonomously um, based on where they are and what their area of responsibility is. Um, so uh, for the, the kind of the shorter version of that is I think the Marine Corps is in a way that I have never seen before looking for its uh, joint partners as force multipliers. So what can, the, what can Space Force and Air Force do for us? Uh, you know, what is the Navy's uh, capacity for resupply in a highly contested environment that has the capacity for um, highly accurate uh, targeting of ships with anti-ships missiles? So different things like that. Where can the uh, joint force uh, plus up the Marine Corps and add a a additional um, 
capability and capacity in a way that is symbiotic, while at the same time recognizing that we may have periods of time where uh, we are still adjusting and adapting and regenerating. I do think that um, America's enemies are, um, they would underestimate us if they thought that we don't have the capacity for regeneration, particularly in space. I I think that uh, people would be awed at what we can do if we need to. Uh, And I I think that that would um, be an opportunity for the United States because I think enemies will underestimate that. And when they do, they do so at their own peril. And uh, at that point, then it's time for the U.S. uh, to boldly uh, exercise all of its capacity and do it in a synchronized fashion. Uh, in order to try and develop um, that uh, that oh, that kind of shock of overwhelming an enemy and psychologically um, capitalizing on that moment of vulnerability, it's pretty remarkable how how important it is to think about you know that ability to adapt when it's already pretty challenging to uh, have to deal with uh, the the signal strength of our Wi-Fi. <laughs> it seems like it seems like uh, there are just these moments when maybe because of the Wi-Fi is down or something, and then I, I guess I know at least in in my circle here, uh, it's 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 almost like panic mode. But then it's like, well, what happens if if that was at a much larger scale? And so just to, just to explore that a bit more is 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 truly wonderful. <laughs> so, um, but I, I also want to now focus a bit more on our strategic partners. Based on your experiences um, as serving as you know, the deputy commander of uh, the Iraq Assistance Group and at the Ambar Provincial Joint Coordination Center, uh, what sort of ways can we bond more closely with our allies, our Indo-Pacific allies like Taiwan and the Philippines and Japan, Korea and then and others um, to and to to gain a much more offensive approach and more effective approach on this national security competition that we have with China? Well, I, I think um, it. it your question is is wonderful for its depth and sophistication because it it really does point out that um, given the the enormous um, size of that area of responsibility, when you look across uh, the the expanse of the Pacific, uh, you do need to have various different areas for basing, for resupply, uh, for refueling. Um, I, I think what is helpful to us is that uh, the, the People's Republic of China has brutalized the other countries in the area. And so they have essentially um, pushed a lot of those countries over towards the United States. I think when we see our interests align, I think we, we find strengths. I think also when we start to divest ourselves of manufacturing uh, and and larger business relationships with PRC and reinvest them into places like uh, Taiwan or Thailand or the Philippines, uh, any of those other um, countries throughout the region. As those um, economic ties build with those countries and as we divest 
and our economic ties or, or balance them much more carefully than what we have in the past with um, uh, the PRC, I think that at that point you start to see us coming together uh, quite well. Uh, the uh, the all elbows bully approach, uh, the uh, communist Chinese are finding that they can buy friends, but they'll have them only so long as the money flows and the relationship only goes as deep as the cash. Uh, so uh, with that, I think that uh, it creates opportunities for us with better state uh, statesmanship and better statecraft uh, because that is a weakness for them. They're not uh, they're not as good strategically uh, as you would think that they should be, uh, you know, in spite of Sun Tzu, and uh, they're uh, not as good um, at uh, the nuance of relationships uh, as a, a nation that size should be. That makes opportunities for us uh, where we can do that better. The uh, caution for any country that might more fully align with the United States is the Chinese are ruthless uh, in their determination to exact retribution. Uh, so th they will do that. And of course, the Australians are finding out some of that right now. Uh, and uh, Taiwan is getting a lot of bellicose gesturing. Um, I don't see that there is any um, any chance that the Chinese won't move on Taiwan. And I think that they feel that, that their time to do that is now and in the moment, uh, especially after how we came out of Afghanistan. I think that that emboldened them and left them very confident that we do not have a, uh, a defense structure that would challenge them, that the leadership here in the United States at this point um, will now open that vacuum up and allow the Chinese to do uh, some things that they have wanted to do uh, for decades. Uh, so that makes it extremely dangerous. And there could come a point where they miscalculate or that the United States uh, is provoked to overreact, which I think would be horrific. Um, so uh, we, you know, the, literally in the weeks and months ahead, we're not talking about years ahead, uh, their time is now. And that makes uh, this point in history extremely dangerous. Uh, and one where the United States needs to have a very well thought out, um, pre-calibrated response. Um, but uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, right now, the way we're positioned uh, with uh, U.S. leadership, I don't think that uh, we have the strength uh, to uh, respond in a way that uh, not only is effective, but also has the sufficient calibration uh, to uh, maintain the uh, autonomy of Taiwan, uh, while at the same time balancing that relationship with PRC. So PRC clearly, I think, senses at this point in time, it has uh, by a long shot the upper hand in this relationship. And it's just coming back from really being on its heels um, prior to COVID. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, and there's no doubt that COVID was a part of the Chinese uh, response to the U.S. relationship. Uh, and now the world is making its way through it. Big questions ahead of us, absolutely, when it comes to Taiwan and uh, some of those issues that relate to COVID and and, and other trade, et cetera. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, this is an area of with regards to Taiwan. This is a huge, huge question, huge problem that we really have to to think very carefully about and also really consider uh, the the consequences of inaction. I hope that it, Taiwan is not our Suez, um, and I hope that 
there is some kind of consideration for 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 a scenario that no one that no one here wants. But um, Colonel, I want to now before we get to our reflection phase of our episode, um, I I was browsing a bit before our recording today, looking at uh, one of the newer white papers or really strategy documents that has been put out by the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard, which is called Advantage at Sea. And I guess I'll just use that title as uh, to frame my question, which is, you know, based on the uh, the topics that we've covered today and uh, your research and your work with the Navy League and your experience uh, serving in the Marines for, for more than 30 years, what are what do you think are some of the key pillars that we need to really focus on as we build our strategy into the rest of the 2020s, 2030s, maybe all the way to the, the middle of the 21st century and beyond? I, I think uh, probably the single most important thing we could do is really identify our uh, national strategic interests. Uh, we probably have spent um, too many years uh, stretched too thin uh, without an understanding of how we can best uh, influence. And uh, I think within the military, it's very hard to have uh, senior leadership um, understand just how narrow uh, the goals are that can be accomplished with kinetics. So if you sit down with an entire National Security Council, you have all the civilian side of our national leadership from the president on down. Uh, the part that the military can achieve by blowing things up or, or killing things is pretty modest. It's a small slice. So if you think of 180 degrees being the total solution, it maybe you can get 20 or 30 degrees out of the entire 180 using kinetics. Everything else has to be something other than kinetics. And normally, I think we, from a kind of an American way of war, we, we imagine that we can bring the full 180 degrees solution, top to bottom, front to back, uh, left to right. It is a, an entirely military solution. And normally we find out that that's just a small portion of what it will take to actually achieve those goals. The second thing is, I think that we haven't given enough consideration to an idea that we change our strategy uh, drastically and say what we're really looking for is freedom of, man of maneuver and freedom of action. So that the classic Westphalian nation state um, has its borders and we respect those borders. But if there's a threat within those borders, and that particular government refuses to address that threat sufficiently so that the United States can guarantee its own national security, under those circumstances, then those borders no longer mean anything to us. They're no longer in charge of that country, and we're no longer constrained. That means relooking international law. It means uh, probably, to some extent, relooking re some of the other types of treaty obligations. But it says basically this, if you have a threat and you won't address it, we will. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are invading, but it might mean that we uh, are wide open for a drone strike that serves our purpose. So we will move where we would like to move, and we will engage when and where we'd like to engage. It, it, uh, probably doesn't look like major troop movements, and it probably doesn't look like um, 
uh, other larger uh, kind of national muscle moves. Um, but it does look like the United States going to, uh, to where it needs to be and addressing threats uh, in a calibrated way where it wants to address them. I think if you, if you uh, rethought that, it might mean that for something like Afghanistan, uh, you don't have a large force, but you have a small force that goes and uh, uh, identifies uh, various threat cells and that at that point destroys them. Um, and it might mean that we operate from international waters uh, or that we operate from nearby friendly countries, but with a dramatically smaller, more sophisticated footprint. And I think that that would be uh, much more effective uh, for the American people, be much more cost effective. Uh, but again, it comes back to ask, answering that initial question, what is your strategic interest? Uh, I think also if you uh, go back to what you could uh, literally nickname, um, you know, uh, uh, produce locally and, and consume locally, right? Buy local. Um, if we uh, wind up uh, being a bit more self-contained as we were through most of our nation's history, then our need to try and control other countries and control sea lanes uh, immediately moderates. And so we can find a better foreign policy and a more realistic, affordable um, military footprint um, by uh, being more self-contained, less uh, reliant on either foreign manufacturing or foreign oil. And we've had a few glimpses recently into that approach. And we, we had some points where people could actually afford to fill up uh, the tank on the SUV. We've gone in the, in the opposite direction. And I think that that's uh, very unfortunate because it does create uh, strategic vulnerabilities for us, uh, both from our economy, um, but also in terms of the pressure that it creates on leadership. Uh, so uh, with that, I think that's how we might recalibrate it. Very well said, Colonel. And uh, you touch upon those aspects that affect the economy. I'm not even get started on the seven dollar per gallon gas in California because that is a whole other episode <laughs> and focus mainly just grievances about how expensive, ridiculously expensive it is, especially for the average American. Colonel, you've provided so much valuable information about the Marine Corps and about our strategy in in China or in in the Indo Pacific regards to China. Um, and some of the other issues that we need to be aware of as we progress through in this decade and for decades to come. To tie this all back into Washington's six principles of his farewell address, which one or which ones do you think are most relevant to our topics that we've covered today? Well, I, I think um, it would be hard to overstate the importance from a national perspective uh, on uh, patriotism and faith. Uh, as bedrocks. Um, but I think that there are other things that are going on now. Um, the capacity for communication, even if you think about the communication that we right now are enjoying in this conversation, uh, this would have been impossible several decades ago. It would have been enormously expensive, um, even within the past 20, 30 years. And the fact that we both can just log on with the internet shows an entirely different uh, time. Uh, the Marine Corps has a new uh, 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 think piece out called Talent Management 2030. And they reach back to legacy notions of diversity. 
And I, I've seen this happen here of late. Uh, when I was growing up, we moved beyond a lot of race-based uh, relationships and we built communities of people that saw people. It's unfortunate that we've gone back. And, and, and you ask yourself, why are we so determined to go backwards? And I think the answer is because we're using a legacy notion of diversity. But think about the people who are coming up with these policies. They're in their 70s and 80s. They grew up in a time of the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. They're a half a century beyond where all the rest of us are. So I think as we see post-millennial and Generation Z, they don't carry that same baggage. The new diversity, the, the legacy diversity were things like race or gender or ethnicity. Th those are legacy issues. This younger generation has already moved beyond that, but they have an expectation of communication. They're used to video teleconference. They're, they're used to really superb communication, and they're used to sophisticated and nuanced communication. And the one last hurdle for that is a magnificent opportunity for uh, the military. Uh, and it's one that we've touched on, and that's language. Language is the new diversity. If we can get to the point where we can communicate effectively, then it's amazing how much more productive, ef efficient, and effective we can be. And if I was going to take and look at that talent management think piece that was produced by the Marine Corps, I would wipe a fair amount of it uh, to the side. There's there's some other career management pieces, which I think are helpful, but I would say, above all, we need to be bringing people into the Marine Corps with, with their key talent being language. So if you said the way to get in the Naval Academy uh, to be hyper-competitive is to, uh, at the time of uh, competing for entrance, to bring four years of formal language training uh, as part of your application as a new student, and then during your time at the academy, a required four additional years, if you start graduating young officers with at least eight years of formal language training, and it would be nice if it's a strategic language, um, it would be enormously helpful, particularly for distributed operations. The second piece of that would be if we're going to take and put widely distributed um, uh units of Marines across a, uh, a large or vast area, wouldn't it be nice if they were out with indigenous populations, if they, if they actually sourced from indigenous uh, population backgrounds? So if we need to have people in Taiwan, do we have a Taiwanese Marine uh, who has full language skills and yet maybe uh, was raised uh, in LA down in Gardena or San Diego or someplace like that. So I think that there's a real opportunity for us in our recruiting, a real opportunity for us in our retention to emphasize language skills as being just as critical as any other skill that we bring to the battlefield, specifically so that uh, as we manage the kinetic piece, we can also manage a, a post-kinetic piece and understand the opportunities uh, when we are operating uh, in very small units, widely dispersed, alone and unafraid, uh, but needing to communicate with people uh, and maybe in some cases not only communicate but blend. And um, I think that that's our new diversity. 
And I'd love to see the Marine Corps lead the way in that and say, the legacy diversity, let's let's be very proud of the accomplishments that we have experienced in the Marine Corps, because my time in the Marine Corps was very impressive on that issue. And now take up a new challenge, which is language diversity, and master that next piece and do it through the teaching, the training, and the mentoring and advising of our American students before we take and bring them into the Marine Corps, either through officer candidate school or uh, through the recruit, recruit depot, and then deepen that understanding and that proficiency during their time of deployment uh, within the Marine Corps. I think if we could do that, uh, we would find a, a great deal of opportunity at, a, at just a fraction of the cost and the uh, payoff to the American people would be superb. And then at the end of the, uh, whatever time they have in the Marine Corps, whether it's a 20-year uh, retirement or whether it's a five-year hitch, um, they could take those same skills to IBM, GM, or 3M and market their capacity to do international business. And that would, I think, be the new and next step for us as the American people as we bring the rest of the globe more closely together. Absolutely. Uh, I've, I just, I'm so grateful to my parents who have uh, given me these opportunities to learn these amazing languages because there, there really is such, such value in them and you you don't necessarily reap the benefits until much later, but uh, I could not be more grateful to them and really to, to all those who, who take on uh, the foreign language opportunities to, uh, to to really put yourself out there uh, and to to climb a new challenge, Colonel, I, I am so grateful for your time today because you have given us not only an amazing perspective on uh, the role of the Marine Corps when it comes to our naval strategy in the Indo Pacific, but you've also, I think, really well integrated. Uh, the Marine Corps into the much larger whole of government approach and the ability for America to not only be good at just uh, building more military equipment. I really appreciate how you've really brought this approach across to multiple sectors uh, in the United States. And I think this is what's I think is very, very fitting with the national unity side of things as part of the, the pillar. So, uh, Colonel, I, I admire so much, obviously, not just what the Navy League does, but what you do every single day and your involvement as part of the, uh, the Marine Corps committee at the Navy League. And I, I really hope that we'll continue this conversation and I hope that this conversation can be expanded to as many audiences as possible. Sherman, thanks so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you very much, Colonel. And thank you all to the audience for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.